All right, it's DT Systems, dog tested and dog tough. You know, we like that dog in them, baby. We've been using the H2O1820. Over the last several months, we've been playing with this unit. Our friends at Standing Stone Kennels, Ethan and Kat, they've been using it for years, and we've been playing with it. We really like it. I think for the dog trainer, the hunter, and the guy or gal who's training their dog to get ready for duck season, we'll really enjoy the 1820. Super reliable, super consistent, great unit for you and your dogs. H2O1820. Dog tested. Dog. All right, baby, Gunner Kennels. Man, one of the things that I love about Gunner Kennels is they're thinking about our older hunting buddies. Old Buck, he hangs out in a Gunner Kennel when he goes to and fro, and in his, we've got the ortho pad. He's got the old joints, and, and even if your dog's not old like Buck, you just want a little bit of added protection as you're rolling down the road to keep that dog from bouncing around a little bit. So the ortho pad, super huge. If you got a younger dog that may dig a little bit, maybe chew a little bit, that performance pad is going to be clutch as well. So check it out. It's the full kit brought to you by Gunner Kennels, always innovating our industry and always keeping your dog safe. Slide the dms if you'd like to learn more about getting you and your dog into a gunner kennel have you wondered if you want to force fetch your dog maybe you think your dog's too soft maybe you're too nervous to screw quote unquote screw your dog up let me help you i built a start to finish course with different dogs different breeds and different personalities from start to finish to show you how that you and your dog can do it successfully and easy jump in links in the description we'd be happy to help you let's go let's set goals and get you and your dog where you want to be this duck season welcome to another episode of lone ducks gun dog chronicles this is episode 63. Can you believe that you've heard 62 of these bad boys so far? Line it up, rack them up, we're going to have another one. It's going to be a good show. We have uh, our good buddy Grayson from Lost Highway Gun Dogs on here. Uh, phenomenal interview. He's the man. Uh, well, we'll get into it, so I'm, gonna, I'm not even going to give any spoilers away. But I get to chat about our good friends this week on our episode uh, and really show Bob how it's done. So make sure you send him a message on Instagram. Tell him how much better I am. Uh, this week, Yukonuba, I personally feed my dogs. Uh, I have three dogs, two English setters, uh, one adopted from Bob, and a golden retriever. And they eat Yukonuba's large breed. Uh, we also feed the sporting breed to a lot of the dogs in our kennels. Both are fantastic. Why did I choose a large breed? Uh, I wanted a little bit less like high-octane zing in the food. My dogs hunt. They train. Uh, but not every single day. They're not out running 20 miles a day, things like that, anything crazy. And so I wanted a little bit less zing in their food. And let me tell you, they perform. It is awesome. If that sounds like something you want to try, check it out. Yukonuba Large Breed. Next. We finally have warm weather up here in New York, uh, and so when I do get out and do some training with my dogs, and they're in the bed of my truck uh, in, in their gunners, I have a fan. Did you guys know that they have a fan that hooks up to the kennel and just pulls cool air in and helps to circulate to keep the dog uh, nice and cool? If you haven't looked into this, I would highly recommend you check it out. 
Gunner Kennels. Check them out. Traeger, let me tell you, love it. Been smoking meat, been smoking vegetables. If I can eat it, I'm trying to smoke it. Uh, Also, pro tip for anybody else out there. Uh, My wife turned 30 this past week. Gave her a wonderful gift of uh, a big, beautiful dinner. Guess who also gets the benefit from that? Me. So we had a giant smoked pork butt and three racks of ribs. I didn't hate it. She didn't hate it. Everybody wins. Traeger, smoke them if you got them, baby. Now, we actually had someone write in the other day um, asking about the types of e-collars that we prefer. If you have listened to all 62 episodes, then you know that we support Dogtra and have for years. Why? Because they work. They're consistent. Whether it's wet, dry, hot, cold, the dog's busting through ice looking for ducks or whatever they might be doing, that e-collar is consistent and you can bet your life on it. Uh, personally, I use the 1900S quite a bit. We had somebody write in recently asking what uh, a, a go-to collar and system might be for someone who just wants to do some training and uh, some some hard hunting. You can't go wrong with the 1900S. Check it out. Finally, Waypoint Outdoor Collective. They help us. We help them. They are phenomenal people. They have tons of really cool podcasts and videos and how-tos and tons of great content on their website. Uh, if you happen to like our podcast, first hit the old five-star review. But then also check out their website and some of the other cool podcasts that they have because if you like us, then you're probably going to like them. Now, our show, alluded to a little bit before, uh, we're chatting with our good buddy Grayson, and uh, I'm not going to steal his thunder, but Grayson, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. Um, I uh, Grayson Geyer from the Winston-Salem region of North Carolina. Uh, I'm actually in a little town named Midway and I'm a gun dog trainer. I primarily train, um, versatile hunting dogs of, uh, of the pointing persuasion and, uh, and, uh, train a, a few other, um, flushers and pointers and retrievers on occasion. Um, you know, but right now we stay busy with, uh, uh, with, with mostly the pointing dogs. Very cool. Um, so I've been a, around Winston-Salem a little bit. How did you – is that where you're you're from? Um, well, I would say I'm from. Uh, I, I was a Navy brat, and uh, I was I was born in Wyoming, but I don't remember it. And this was, you know, the ancestral homeland, and uh, my folks made it back here, and, and uh, this is where I was raised up. My grandfather is, is from the area, um, a small town – uh, called High Point, North Carolina, and so that's what I really consider home. And I'm back in this area again, and um, really, all the families either died off or, or left, and, and I'm here now. But it's really cool, you know. It's still still where the roots are. So happy to be here for sure. Good for you. Good for you. So you had mentioned that you know you're mainly in the versatile world, and you you do NAVDA, don't you? Yeah, I, I, well, actually, I'm really new to NAVDA, um, and I mean, and honestly, the the versatile world uh, kind of fell into the niche of pointing dogs. Uh, I, um, but uh, you know, because I had a background 
of training with retriever trainers. I wouldn't call myself a, a retriever trainer, but I, you know, that was, that was kind of where I cut my teeth and how I was mentored into the business professionally. Um, you know, it, it just, it was a natural fit. And, uh, you know, I think you and I share a lot of the same, um, a lot of the same beliefs in that regard. Uh, so, you know, and, and, in the way we train, um, and, uh, and kind of the traditions that go along with the American style of retriever training, I bring a lot of that to, to what I do. And, um, it's a good, it's a good situation. Now to give everybody a little bit of a background, you, now you did some military time, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I was, I served as a, uh, a Navy corpsman, um, and spent, uh, the, the entirety of my time with the Marine Corps, um, between 1998 and 2003, uh, I was not involved with the dogs. Um, while I was in the service, I was actually, I was a medic only. And, but I, I was introduced to training as a hardcore hobbyist at that time. So, yeah, so it was, a it was a great experience. You know, I'm not, I try not to be the, the salty vet that, uh, you know, that, that, that wears my entire, the service history is my identity, but, uh, I'm very proud of my service and, you know, it it really, uh, brought me into adulthood and, uh, and, you know, I think a lot about it all the time. So yeah, it was a great time. Well, in lieu or not in lieu of, but because of Memorial day, we, you know, we'll give you a big thank you and to all the others that you served with. And so it's pretty awesome that you did that and then chase your dream with the dogs. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. And you know, it's, uh, the, the dogs kind of in the military converged later in life. Um, you know, uh, I guess from an, from an origin story, uh, getting back to it when I was active duty, um, I was, I was working at, uh, at the second Marine division scout sniper school as the medic. And they ended up getting a, uh, a week of training added to their schedule and um, they couldn't figure out like how to fill that time because they were in the middle of teaching a course. So they kind of asked me to help and call around and just see if we could get some subject matter experts from around the base uh, to come and, um, you know, fill that time, just giving talks, talking about what they do. And and we got the MPs over there with their dogs. And um, I was like 18 and the guys let me take a bite on a sleeve from one of those dogs. And like two weeks later, I had my own little Belgian Malinois and I was a member of the local Schutzen club. And, um, you know, I never really looked back, man. I was training really hard and excited about it. And I did other jobs, uh, between now and then, uh, and tried uh, my hand at sales for a little while and found out I was a better dog trainer. And, uh, and here, you know, here we are, you know, after a long row, uh, of, of, you know, training protection and police type dogs and service dogs. And then, uh, and they're on to, um, contracting for the government with a, uh, with a program known as the IDD program. Um, you know, and then leaving there and kind of being mentored by all the retriever trainers in that program and, and getting out and deciding this is what I wanted to do with my life. So yeah, the military and, and the dogs have just, you know, been really good to me tell everybody about the idd program what that stands for what the dogs need to be capable of doing to protect our troops 
Yeah, so the the IDD program, it it's the IDD stands for Improvised Explosive Device Detection Dog. So the IED being an acronym by itself, and then DD being the detection dog part. Um, it was a it was a program, I you know, and I've I've done a little digging around, and I, and I'm kind of embarrassed to say that I'm not super well prepared for the podcast. Uh, as far as the deep, deep history of the program. Um, but I do know uh, that there were some big players uh, early on that were um, retriever enthusiasts, and they were deeply connected in the, in, in, to, in the Department of Defense. So uh, I went to work for a company called K2 Solutions out of Southern Pines, or Aberdeen, North Carolina, Um and it was uh, owned by and, and operated by a man named Lane Kelson. Uh, and Lane uh, was, was a fantastic boss and a great mentor. Uh, and I'm really lucky that I had the time to be associated with that company. And, it, and that that experience, I was in my my early 30s when I got there. Um, you know, after after leaving the service and going to college and playing rugby and having a good time and trying everything else in the world. Uh, ending up there um, kind of sh- showed me what I wanted to do with my life. And so I, I got there and uh, I was paired with a gentleman named Ben Vallon. He was my first direct supervisor and he was a um, longtime uh, assistant trainer for Mike Lardy. And so nice. that was, yeah. So, you know, I had had this background as a protection sports guy and I'd worked for some police dog vendors prior and that was what I understood outside of, you know, a childhood spin around some bird dog men, but, you know, uh, not, not really understanding that world. And so, you know, right into just top level retriever pros. And I mean, the place was full of, them. it was awesome. I got to train with, I was training with Ben. I was training, I was mentored by, by several different people directly. Um, there was Ben, another gentleman named uh, Bob Messina. They used to operate a kennel called Cascade out of Oregon that yep. um, had a lot of success in trials. And then uh, uh, a gentleman named Craig Crook, who, and all of these guys, you know, I consider just great friends and, and, uh, and I owe them a lot in regards to what they gave me as, as, you know, for my career today. But Craig, I think Craig's working for Andy Attar today and he's out just sweeping trials wherever he goes. He's a, just a, uh, an absolute just smoking hot handler and trainer. And so, you know, that was, it was so, so neat to have zero exposure to be a really hardcore dog training nerd with no background in retrievers and to just get dropped in the middle of this place um, with these guys and, uh, and, you know, just complete clean slate and, and, uh, and get to, just drink it all in every day. So, you know, it was was awesome. And we made some great dogs. Um, The way that program worked was uh, we, we basically, we built handling dogs as if we were making hunt test or field trial dogs, you know, a little, obviously not to those exact standards. We were um, for, for anybody that's listening to this, that was, you know, probably even, casually involved in field trials or hunt tests at that time, um, which would have been like 2011 through 2018, they'll probably remember the program and remember uh, pros selling dogs to it. But 
you know, we were, we were making handling dogs and we were imprinting them on explosive devices and we were training Marines and we were going to Afghanistan and Iraq with them. And, and these dogs were, were saving a lot of young men's lives. And it was a, uh, it was a killer program. We had a lot of fines um, of IEDs that were such a, such an enormous threat in, in those theaters. So, uh, you know, it's probably, it's, it's one of the things I'm most proud of in my life. And, and, you know, that time and that work, uh, you know, definitely, um, molded who I am today as a trainer. And it was intense, man. I mean, we were training super, super hard and we were working really hard. It was three guys to a truck, which was really nice. It was kind of a luxury. And we had, you know, 20, 24 dogs on a truck, depending on, um, the rig. And, uh, and we just went out every day and, and we made handling dogs and made bomb dogs. It was super cool. That is super cool. So, when the dog graduates the program and they're working in Afghanistan, what are they expected to do? If you can paint a picture for someone, what a finished, sold dog to the government looks like and what their job is day in and day out saving people, what are they doing? And what are, because now, all right, well, and then did you have to educate like the handlers as well? Or did you just do the training? Yeah, yeah. And that was a, it was comprehensive. It was everything from the procurement of, of the lab um, through, you know, and for me, it was really cool because I was what was known as an FSR, uh, field service representative. So I would actually go through, I was lucky enough with, with several of the dogs to go through the, the buy trip where I would get in the truck, a, a good buddy of mine, Chris Payne, uh, shout out to Chris of Red Dirt Retrievers out in Oklahoma. He's a chessy man. Um, but he and I would get on the road and, you know, go from North Carolina to North Dakota and all places in between and, and, you know, buy dogs and assess dogs. And, and, um, you know, if they were, if they looked good, we'd put them on the truck, we brought them home, we put them through medical, uh, we'd take them down to the vet and they'd take a lot of x-rays and do run a lot of tests. And then, you know, we'd keep, keep the dogs back. And as long as everything, you know, ran, ran clean, uh, we'd cut a check, send it to those guys, and we were we were paying, I think, pretty pretty big bucks for some dogs at, at you know certain points in the contract when you know when it was flowing, and then we would come back and we would usually end up on a seventy day cycle. So those dogs would get picked up, and uh, and they would go to a truck with three trainers. There would be a, a team leader, what was known as a two IC or the second in command, and then you know kind of the peon on the truck that everybody like me started as, and, uh, and we would go out every day and we would start with, depending on the dogs, most of the dogs were already handling when we bought them. Um, you know, some of the guys I worked for would like to go back and, uh, and basically put the dogs through a complete force program, even if they had already been through, you know, and, and just rebuild in their, yep. their way. And, and that was awesome. And then, you know, some of the other guys would kind of assess the dogs and if, and just, give each dog what they needed, you know, and they were, it was really neat to see all of these guys who were great trainers with their own spin. You know, they all had their each own individual style. Um, and some were, some were heavier handed than others, but they were all effective, you know? And, um, and so that was cool. So we, 70 days, we, I, you know, I had a background in police dogs. So a lot of my work was imprinting the dogs on explosive odors and teaching, um, teaching the dogs, you know, the, their responses or their, um, you know, how they would indicate 
the explosive odor and and but the, you know they were all hunting dogs already we would use a lot of bumpers and pre-searches in fields and once they understood what they were supposed to do around explosive odor then we would start handling them in the in the field around vehicles and buildings and things like that and what it really allowed us to do is build a dog that could be handled remotely um, around, you know, high explosives at, at a distance. So it was a, it gave the ability for a standoff for the handler, and you know, gave the handler the opportunity to put some space between him and the potential uh, high explosive um, and the danger. You know, and, and obviously it put the dog in harm's way. Um, but for the most part, you know, if the dogs were trained well, they they indicated without um, triggering these IEDs. And, you know, there were a couple of instances where we know that the dogs did trigger an IED and, and that's terrible. We, you know, we also know that it saved a bunch of lives and, um, you know, and so not, not that that's an acceptable loss, but it certainly, uh, you know, gave, it, it was a, it was a special sacrifice for that dog that did a lot of good. For, for these guys and got them back home. And there, there's a lot of young men raising families today because of these dogs. So, you know, that was the idea. We'd build them up. Uh, we'd 70 days, we'd get a class together. I think if I'm, if I'm not remembering incorrectly, I think we had like nine or 12 weeks with them in North Carolina. Um, and we would try to teach these guys to essentially go from zero dog experience to handling at the master hunter type level you know, and yeah. in nine or 12 weeks and they were working super hard. Um, and you know, sun up to sundown every day. And a lot, you know, we got, you get to see talent, you know, and you get to see a lot of lack of talent too, but you get, everybody had a work ethic and, and we built some fantastic handlers. And there's some guys that are still in dogs today, uh, that came through that program and would never have been into it otherwise. Um, so that was cool. Uh, and then we'd usually go to California with them where they would do their, Workup, uh, we uh, spent as long as, I mean, I think, and some of the guys would go out there and spend like three months, you know, waiting for the, the workup to, to get come, come around after the guys had been through class. Um, and the whole time we got the dogs out there, we're maintaining the dogs and the Marines are doing all their field operations and training and getting ready for this deployment. And we would take the dogs and help them integrate. Uh, and it was a place called 29 Palms out in the middle of the desert in Southern California. Um, and, uh, and so those, you know, it was interesting to see, you know, certain units really, um, just, you know, bought in and accepted the dogs and loved it. And they, and those units were usually operationally much more successful than the ones that didn't, um, you know, and, and so, you know, I was lucky to be a part of two units that I went all the way through with and, and was deployed to Afghanistan with that bought in. Um, and so, I was with uh, third LAR. I was actually with three units. I took over um, first LAR and then was with third LAR uh, in Southern Helmand province, which is light amphibious, or I'm sorry, light. Yeah. Amphibious reconnaissance. Maybe I, I can't recall to be honest with you, but it's a, they're, they've got vehicles and they drive across the desert real fast and they get out and, and uh, you know, and support infantry troops directly. Cool. Yeah, and that was my first appointment in 2012, and I had 30 dogs and 30 guys that I was responsible for maintaining the training on. Um, and then I went back in 2014 with uh, three seven 
um, third Marines, third, uh, third battalion, seventh Marines. Um, and, uh, and those guys were hard as nails and great dog handlers. And that time I only took about 14 dogs and they think they'd become more efficient in the integration. So we took fewer dogs, but they were as a percentage wise, they were getting more work. So that's, that's kind of it from, uh, from the beginning to the end is what it looked like. And, and the dogs would go out on patrol with these guys every day and go, and they were in front of these patrols and the Marines that handled them were, were at the very front of the line looking for, uh, looking for bombs. And there were a lot of roadside bombs out there. And so these guys, you know, they had complete trust in these dogs and, um, and we, you know, we took it very, the responsibility very seriously to try and, keep these dogs as you know proficient as possible um and it was you know it was sketchy but uh it was awesome it was something to be proud of and when they had success man it felt really good you know so and they had quite a bit absolutely do you know did you keep track of how many fines that the dogs you worked with had i know so we would have you know, I don't want to speak out of place and, and, and I certainly don't want to, you know, I don't want to say anything. I don't want to say anything incorrectly more than anything, but certainly just in case, um, there's still some operational security issues around it. I, I, I wouldn't say, but I would, I would say, you know, unofficially, um, I know that my guys claimed on my second deployment to have more than 50 fines, um, during the course of a four month deployment. Wow. Yeah. So those are, you know, inexact numbers, but, but, you know, and the thing was, is recording those, what, what ended up happening is, you know, in order to get, uh, to, to have that find recorded EOD would have to be summoned. They would have to dig it up and confirm that they had a device and what they would do for the sake of brevity, uh, oftentimes while they were on patrol was, Hey, the dog indicated, we're just not going to walk there and get blown off. We're going to go this way, gotcha. you know? And, and so that, you know, and so, um, but you know, we, Still we, tr- you awesome. know, we trusted the dog. So absolutely. Absolutely. Um, when you're working these dogs, it, it's basically you're running a blind. And so you're sending yep. them out, exactly casting them this way, casting them that way casting them around vehicles, casting them down roadways, and then come back the other way down the road. Um, is there, I don't want to make that sound like it's nothing, but is there more to it where you had to send through a house or are, are they almost on like a free hunted up where they're going through alleyways? What what else? I mean, I'm trying to picture it, right? Yep. Yeah, there was a there was a lot of that. So I mean, one thing we really didn't do unless we were just giving the dogs exercise or letting them have fun was was give these dogs a lot of marks. So we would go out and run, you know, one truck in particular when I was working for Bob Messina. You know, we would start the truck. We'd go through a force program, and as we would train, we'd start building pattern blinds. You know, and we may have seven or eight locations where we would go out and build pattern blinds. Um, and, and then we would go do just like enormous run buys and things like that. Um, but we would go build, you know, seven or eight blinds in one location. And then, you know, Bob was big on, um, control. So we would run them, you know, poison bird setups and things like that, even though we wanted the dog to honor their nose, 
we wanted them to handle too. So we spent a lot of time putting the dogs in, in situations that would trip them up and, and get a lot of really tight handle on our blinds. And we were running these dogs on big, big, awesome busting cover. And, you know, we, you know, just hardcore, uh, big, big blinds. And, and so that, you know, these dogs were super capable blind running machines. Now a lot, when, by the time they got to the Marines, you know, a lot of the Marines weren't, you know, it was, it would be unfair to ask them to handle them to that level. But what was required of these guys when they got to them, um, they, the dogs were so, so capable that it was just a breeze putting them through the certification as far as the blind work was concerned. Um, we did do, yeah. And we, we did a lot of free searching too. Um, you know, and so we would do a lot of open area searches because, you know, you're in the desert and sometimes you just got to turn the dog's nose on and let them run like we're hunting pheasants. And we would, we would teach those skills as well. And it was easy, you know, I mean, it just, it's, uh, when you have nice high drive dogs and you have the, you have a big budget to buy good dogs with and a lot of them, it's, you know, it's pretty simple to make dogs go out and find bumpers and, and then, you know, transition that to odor and they're happy, super happy to do it. We would, uh, we would do things, you know, one thing that you may never want to do if you're a retriever guy is run your dog down a road, you know, obviously that's the guy spent a lot of time in linear, you know, um, areas like that. And so we would get the dogs. We always wanted to make sure we could break those linear crossings you know, and send a dog across the road, but the dogs also got comfortable running down a road. We would treat intersections like a T, like a T pattern, you know, and, and just, and if, and a lot of times that's where you'd find IEDs would be culverts around the intersections of those T patterns. So we'd send the dog through, run a T, you know, and send them, let them, and then let them break down and hunt, you know, and that was a big part of it. So the dogs, it was, it was really cool because we, we probably got to do things that defied convention in the retriever world with, you know, letting these kind of monster hunts happen, but also keeping the dogs tight enough that we could call them right out of it and, and, and handle them, handle them, you know, with a lot of precision at the same time. Now, um, uh, Jason, with like, what's the know, that, attrition rate relevant. with this? You know what I mean? Like not every dog is capable uh, of doing that sort of unbelievable. That's, yeah. That's a task, fact. Right? Uh, yeah. 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 No, I mean, we did, we, we, we scratched a lot of dogs. We, we had a third party that certified our dogs. So like I said, I mean, we would train to these standards that were, that surpassed the the third party certification. And, you know, the third party certification, we'd go out to a field full of cars and we'd have to send the dog to individual cars and we'd have to walk them down the road. But in all honesty, you know, that, that test that was required of them to certify um, was not, you know, we, we were training, we were doing our best to train these super, super high standard dogs. Yeah. And so that's not necessarily what was required, but I would say, I mean, obviously, like you, like you said, man, I mean, some dogs are going to be more capable than others. You know, we had, you know, you would have your standouts and you would try to pair your standout dog to your standout handler, you that know, and sense. you also didn't want to have just a, yeah, you didn't want to have a super weak, you know, dog with a super weak handler. So you, you had to, you know, 
when you had the, the front end of the bell curve team put together, sometimes you had to put a, you know, a pretty strong handler with a, with a relatively weak dog if they meshed. So the pairing process was in, interesting and tough. And a lot of times, um, you know, it wasn't just the best guy gets the best dog and then down the line that way. But you definitely wanted to give that high roller that was capable of taking that, you know, 20 degree handle at, you know, 150 plus yards to that guy that was capable of giving it to him, yeah. you know? And, and so, um, you know, that was, it, it was, it, there were, it was, again, some of those dogs were, I mean, capable of, of amazing things. And some of them sat at a gate and, but still found bombs and never got handled, you know? So it was, you know, you, what you, what you hoped for was, and it was great when that happened to you, you know, and then, and those guys weren't in harm's way and, and that, you know, you, we, we were happy when they had fines, but we were also happy when they weren't being underutilized because there was just nothing to do, you know? Yeah. So, um, we just tried to put the right dog in the right place with the right guy. So you've got all this retriever experience. What made you now, now you come home, what made you dive into pointing breeds versus the lab world? It's yeah, it's interesting. I mean, that was, you know, so I grew up in, in this area. Um, yeah, I've got an uncle that owns a preserve, uh, about, about an hour and a half south of where I live in a town called Bisco. Um, and, and that's where he grew up. It's my, my mother's sister's husband. And I grew up around him and he's a, he's a big bird dog, man. He always had a big kennel full and, you know, a busy preserve and, uh, and I got to spend enough time there to kind of get the bug as a kid, but not enough to like, to, to actually have access to it as much as I wanted. Um, but I, and then of course my grandfather, you know, as every kind of earthy guy of that time, um, around here was, was a bird hunter or a small game hunter. Uh, and, and so, you know, there were always stor stories of bird dogs and kind of quail hunting in this, in this part of the country has just such a deep history that, you know, I, I, it, it was a, a natural thing to be intrigued in. And obviously as I, as I grew up, that went away. Um, but I, I always had an interest in it. Uh, and then I had my own bird dog. I got my own dog in college. So as soon as I got out of the military, I went down saw my uncle and, uh, and got a setter, um, and took it to college with my Malinois, right. Living in a one bedroom apartment with a field bred setter, um, and a, and a Malinois That's awesome. was uh, pretty chaotic. Um, but it was, it was cool. And I got to be pretty decent at, at keeping my dogs under control. Um, chick and, magnet. Uh, I can imagine. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, until you actually like just turn them loose, you know, yeah. he went around and, and marked, marked everything. And, you know, and then the Malinois would get a little overly protective and not want the girls hanging around too close. <laughs> so that was, you know, they, they may have been chick magnets like at first, but they were like chick, uh, you know, polar, uh, you know, <laughs> that's polar, awesome. uh, yeah. Magnets at, you know, at the, at the end, but yeah, no, it, it was cool. And it, I enjoyed it, and I uh, that setter. I went to college in Appalachian State University in the mountains of North Carolina, and, and he got to go grouse hunting with me all the time. And 
um, as I matriculated and went out into the world, he ended up with a buddy of mine uh, that just had the time and the, and the desire to own him and go hunting. And I went on and thought I was going to get a real world job that involved a suit and tie and found out I did not like that at all. Me either, but I'm with uh, you on that one. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And the whole time I was still staying active in like protection sports. And I had worked at a, at a couple of police dog vending kennels along the way and had been mentored early by those guys. And so that was where I really cut my teeth as a trainer and uh, I, I did a lot of competing um, in a sport called PSA, which is Protection Sport Association, um, and and was a decoy, so the guy in the suit for that that sport. And I really enjoyed like the technical aspect. And then and today, you know, still, um, I would say that you know the protection sports their approach to training is just more technical than than hunting sports and the gun dogs in general. And so you see, you know, it's not abnormal to hear a couple of Schutzen or PSA guys sitting around talking and using the vernacular of behaviorism, like operant conditioning and classical conditioning that to, to converse. And it's not something you hear very often around gun dogs. No. And so why don't you take a second uh, and, when, and explain that to our listeners and me and Kevin? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make it really quick. I, I, uh, I, I can, I can get to pontificating on this and it, it, it gets problematic. So what, what I will say is, you know, operant conditioning and classical conditioning make up kind of the meat of the, the field of behaviorism. And so we have Pavlov that uh, at least coined the term classical conditioning or, coined the the philosophy or the theory and then we had uh fred bf skinner um that, that was responsible for operant conditioning that was kind of an extension of a thing called uh instrumental learning that was brought up by a man named uh john watson so classical conditioning simply is stimulus and response um and it's uh if you think of Pavlov, we've, most of us have all heard about this. He, he, the important thing about Pavlov was that he was a physiologist and not a psychologist. And he's often kind of misattributed with that profession. And, um, you know, he was studying digestion in dogs. He had his students and he would re- he recognized uh, that as his students came in to feed, um, this tone would go off on the door and eventually he would walk in, the tongue would go off, and he'd recognize that the dogs were salivating. And he recognized, as a physiologist studying digestion, that that was a digestive process. And it was reflexive, meaning the dogs didn't have to think about doing it. It just happened automatically. Um, or, you know, And so that, what he realized is when we paired two stimulus, uh, two stimuli, um, the food and the tone, uh, and we took the food away, which was the... Uh, the primary stimulus, then the the tone represented that well enough to still trigger this re- reflexive response in the dogs, and so it gave it kind of gave us the power to to begin to manipulate um, at least positive reinforcement, right? So uh, to to send a shot of dopamine to the dog's brain um, in order to to let them know uh, food's on the way, um, and so that's how we use it today, and that's how it, you know that's 
when we explain things like clicker training and things like that, that's exactly what we're talking about. But honestly, it works with pain as well. So if I say no to a dog and uh, most of the time I say the word no, uh, it's followed by a, by a little bit of pain, um, then I create a reflexive response there. It's prepared to feel pain. Um, and so it's the same principle. Uh, operant conditioning, just really quickly, is, is four terms. We have positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, positive punishment, and negative punishment. And those four terms are made up of the four words positive, negative, punishment, and reinforcement. And so if I have, when I say positive, I only mean I'm adding something to the equation, meaning, uh, you know, like a, like a battery. Positive doesn't have any, there's no emotive value. So if I say positive, I'm usually adding food uh, or a prey reward um, or pain. Uh, and so if I say negative, it simply means I'm taking something away. So like negative, uh, it, it, just a, a minus sign. It doesn't mean unhappy or sad. It just means I'm simply taking, removing something from the equation. Um, punishment means I'm making a behavior less likely to occur in the future. And reinforcement means I'm making a behavior more likely to occur in the future. And that's it. So if I say positive reinforcement, simply means I'm adding something to the equation to make a behavior more likely to occur in the future. If I say negative reinforcement, it means I'm removing something, um, namely pain, to make a behavior more likely to occur, to occur in the future, the reinforcement part. And like the perfect example of that, the most beautiful and precise kind of application of negative reinforcement is the force fetch, you know? And so it's, it's fun to, and when I got to K2 and I'm having all these guys explain the force fetch to me, uh, you know, I started talking about negative reinforcement and getting laughed out of the room for being a poindexter in the corner. But it's, you know, it, it, it was a really great time for me. And I got to, um, you know, I got to get really excited about, about training. So, you know, that's, that's kind of how those two worlds came together for me. But, you know, I would love to see the gun dog world kind of adopt at least that vernacular, because I think it would, you know, you, you hang around on Facebook long enough and you realize how, how many of these arguments uh, that, that we all love to have with one another are just simply because we're, you know, talking about talking about the same thing with two different languages. Exactly. Now, when you are, one of the things that I find interesting is people who have diverse backgrounds in dogs. So for instance, you're the prime example. You worked initially with police dogs, protection dogs in that world. Then you went to K2 and worked with retrievers and retriever trainers working on running blinds. And then now you're working with pointing breeds, which there is some nuances to it, but not a whole lot. But how do you mold that? Where do you see things like, like for me, because I train retrievers, but dabble in the pointers, I take what I know from the retriever world and bring it into what the pointer people say, don't do, wait till they're three, this, that, the other thing. And I'm able to not, and I don't mean this in a jerk way, but, you know, I guess I've gotten a lot more out of pointers quicker than the old school pointing way. But also I might also be dampening certain things because I'm treating them like a lab and then honing the pointing, which is tends to be easier. 
So I don't know. I, I want to hear how things that you take from the canine world to the gun dog world. Yeah, and I mean, well, thanks for helping me get back to pointers. I know you'd asked that question originally. I'm sorry, I kind of went off on a no, on a little pontificated, uh, tangent buddy. There. You pontificated. <laughs> I first, did pontificate. That's the first time that word's been used on this podcast. Hundred percent. Well, be the I last. promise you, keep talking, man. <laughs> we will redefine that word. I promise, man. Um, no, you know, I, pointers. So, what I love about like so. Pointers to me are, are beautiful. There's a few things that I find just like fascinating about dogs and like, um, you know, when I say pointers, you know, I'm talking about all of the pointing breeds, uh, but I don't care. Like I don't really get hung up on, on breed specificity. I do like kind of dabble as a hobbyist in, in French Britneys, but it's just simply, I, there's no rhyme or reason, right? I, I would much rather have a good, example of any other pointing breed than a bad example of a French pretty. Okay. Um, you know, so but what I love about them is they're like the pure expression of, of, of instinct, which is, you know, and I told my grand, my grandfather was still living when I was at K2. He was a huge influence on me. And, uh, this story is going to get old really quick for anybody that's ever talked to me because I tell it all the time, but I love it because it's the perfect, explanation for like bird dogs and how we get ourselves to kind of wrapped up and um, at least on the training end. Um, but when I told him, you know, I was going to, my plan was to finish at K2 as the wars wound down and like start my own thing. And I'd really like to train dogs on my own, start my own business. He said, well, what kind of dogs are you going to train? I said, bird dogs. And he said, that's the dumbest shit I ever heard in my life. <laughs> he was a smart man. <laughs> Yeah, because you just turn them loose, and they're either a bird dog or they ain't. And he, he, there's a lot of truth in that, man. <laughs> you know, and especially if you live in a place with any any population of wild birds, you know that's how it was in the old days, man. You know, it didn't take long to figure out when you had a good dog and when you didn't, right? Um, because you know, birds make bird dogs, and uh, you know what what I like about the versatile side of that game is that there's at least some technical training involved i enjoy training the retrieve and i enjoy kind of problem solving some some of the things that are involved in that um but really with bird dogs man if you got a good one a lot of it is just knowing how to stay out of their way you know you, you put a little bit of handle on them and you you kind of you build the drive and then you let the bird kind of do the talking and then if you can you know the key is and this is where i'm sure you have a skill set that a, a lot of folks haven't honed with bird dogs because it's not required is putting handle on a dog and understanding how to balance drive with that, you know? And so you see it in labs every day, you know, when to put your foot on the gas and when to put your foot on the brake intuitively, right? Because labs is you know, training retrievers is all about balancing drive, you know, how, you know, keeping a dog steady while keeping them, ready to blow wide open and, and make that, you know, big long and keep them motivated enough to run that big long blind um, with a good attitude and style, you know? And, and so it's the same deal here. You know, if you, if you have that, if that comes naturally to you, then in my opinion, you know, bird dogs get that much easier because, you know, it's, if you, if you're always, if I get a dog that's got a bad attitude and then I'm going to, I'm going to take, you know, I'm going to kind of take, take my foot off the, off the brake and I'm going to let them have some fun, you know? Absolutely. And, and then if I see that attitude come up and 
uh, and they're starting to get a little too, a little too, you know, tough on their birds and things like that. And they're, you know, but, but I believe that we've developed the drive required to get what I want. Then I start saying, okay, here's your rules again, you know, start living by them, you know, and, and it's really just as simple, you know, it's, that's, that's speaking in code to a lot of people. That's not telling a lot of people a lot of stuff, but you know, for people that have had a few dogs through their hand, they're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, and, and that's, the that's word, what makes dog training fun. Exactly. I use the word finesse. It, it's, yeah, you know, absolutely. you can, you can read a book, you can watch a DVD, you can listen to this podcast, you can go on YouTube and you can do, you can read articles, all that jazz until you've done it. And until you've done it on a bunch of dogs where the personalities are different, the timing is different, this, that, and the other thing. It, it may be cut and dry. It may be black and white. Sure. But getting there is finesse. It's looking at the situation and being yeah. timely. And when to pump them up, when to bring them down. It, it's, I, I do have, I answer a lot of questions on Instagram and on this podcast. But when it comes down to it, without looking at the dog and the handler and how they're doing it, it's so hard to fix or help sometimes because at the end of the day it's like all that dog may have needed is two fun bumpers and let's get back at it you know or that's right you've only been doing this for a week man like he didn't put that in his note to me that he's only been on t pattern for a week and why can't he run a cold blind like i I don't know but it's it's (laughs) so much of a or you're you're steady yeah you're yeah you're steady three month old you know that's you know so uh, prevalent on Facebook, you know, it's just, exactly. it's, it's that there's, I think I, I'm really big on allowing dogs to get like, just get as high as they can possibly be to a certain point and then start refining them, you know, in regards to drive or, you know, and, and whatever and the way I define it, you know? And so I want, especially with my bird dogs, I do things that are a little unconventional. I don't start early if I can avoid it. But I don't mind. You know, if I have a super high drive dog, I don't mind um, kind of, kind of, you know, working that dog a little more earlier. But I, I love to have them. I, I love it when people bring me like a two year old um, that they're like, I can't control this dog, you know, right. because then I know I have pure expression of drive, and I know that this dog kind of probably it means that that person was afraid, hopefully, to start applying pressure in too many different places. Right. You know, and now I get this raw product that's, you know, probably a lot of dog and not a lot of fun right now. Um, but, but it's, you know, we can again start finessing that dog into the in, in into the in the right direction. And and I, I, you know, I'm a big believer in self discovery and letting that dog kind of figure out what the right thing is. And he, you know, that I love. And that we talk about, and that I think pointers, yeah, in particular. Um, style is so important and they show it so well you know you know when a dog's intense and when they're not yes you know you know when a dog's going through the motions uh versus when they just can't wait to see that dog get or that bird get in the air you know yeah. so so that's, so let's um, run through something real quick i've got a, a bird dog uh yep. let's say I, i'm i'm the guy i got an eight-week-old bird dog i want to send him to you what do you tell me yep I, you know, I'll tell you, I'll take your dog as early as probably 16 weeks. Um, you know, take them home. 
I, I like getting, you know, one thing that's a little different, I think, you know, retrievers, depending on the dog, you know, I, I like to expose them to birds early, but not overdo it. You know, I, I think it's, it's cool for them to see it, not be afraid of it, not have some weird experience, you know, at a certain age. So I love quail for all the dogs um, because they tend to be a kind of a fragile bird that the dogs can beat up on and get excited about. Um, you know, but, but once I know that like a retriever is pretty, has been exposed and is, is not, it's not going to be so novel to them that, that it messes anything up. Then I'll kind of, then we're going to go back to lower value items to, to train mechanics on, because I know that when you see a bird, it's going to trigger drive. Right. You know, and then, um, now we, we may get to the point where I need to, to, dampen that at some point you know but that's that's something for later down the road but with bird dogs man like i'll keep bird dogs in birds as puppies forever you know and and i let them that they're going to dictate what pace they move at so the first time they see a bird with me it's going to be a clip wing bird they're hopefully going to find it incidentally out just playing around with their litter mates or with other puppies um and it's going to run and they're going to chase it. And, you know, a lot of times it looks silly. They just end up barking at it or they go over there and lick it and try to resuscitate it or something. And, <laughs> but eventually, you know, they're eventually they're chasing it down and murdering it. Right. And that's now I've got, I've got this, this puppy that wants nothing more in the world than to go find a bird and, uh, and maul it. And that's cool. And that's fine with me. And now I'm going to begin to allow those birds to be a little more mobile and and start ev- evading those dogs and so as those birds begin to escape especially in flight the dogs begin to to develop their natural point which is just a refined stalking instinct and you can't in my opinion you shouldn't try to teach a dog to point that should be something that comes out in them naturally you know and and that's that's in their dna and so i want to just expose them to birds some dogs are going to come out and no matter how immobile that bird is, they're going to point it and they're not going to want to jump on it. And that can be problematic in and of itself because you say in the future, have a, that, a, a little be... room for Yeah, that that will be <laughs> yeah. harder in the future, I feel like. It, it can be, right? Because then, you know, once you start applying pressure in the form of pain, you know, to control that, that dog's impulses, you don't have that drive and desire to lean on that that just killer instinct you know and and that's what gives that dog resilience um so to me and and this is a pretty controversial topic and especially with the versatile dog guys you know the field trial i think guys tend to appreciate style in a way that they're going to allow it to develop that way right um where a lot of the versatile guys they 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 value steadiness above all and they really don't care about style as much. Some do, and I, I don't. I don't want to speak in complete generalities, right? No, but, but it's fine. You know, so you're, on, you're on our podcast. It's cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I take a lot of flack for letting dogs chase, and I let them chase until I'm comfortable that they that I that that they're you know high as a kite, and I can start and I can start peeling it off. Well, so for you me, know? and then if I get a dog, that's... Go ahead. sorry. So I was going to say for me, like. The dogs who don't have the chase, when are you going to yeah. start introducing gunfire? That chase is... That, when, well, that's it? Yeah, I want them to be running and and just nothing 
stands in their way. They're chasing that bird and pink in the background. So we've done, you know, uh, let me take a step back. Like for retriever training, we've all talked about this on the podcast, how I do gunfire. So review back. But for the pointing dogs I've done, I want that dog running through the field, chasing that pigeon or whatever, and then they hear the gunfire. It's the same idea as with a retriever. And if a pointer already points and doesn't move and is just like, all right, there it goes. You know, when you crank off a 209, even if you're far away, they have nothing else standing in their way saying, well, what was that? That was kind of spooky. You know, you need drive. You've got to build it. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And I mean, that's, I, I think that's everything to me, you know, and uh, I, nothing, I mean, I, well, and I'm lucky that a lot of folks don't feel the same way I do because I end up getting a lot of quote unquote rehabs, right. That they nice. get brought to me for blinking and I let them catch their first or second bird of their life. Right. They've been, they've had their, their chase restrained since they were puppies. Now all of a sudden they catch a bird for the first time and they're like, they're, they're never going to blink a bird ever again. Right. You know, it might take me a while to get pointing again, you know, I'm, but I'm not opposed to going out there and letting them catch two dozen if that's what it takes to get them where, where they want to be, where I want them to be. So I want to, I want to stop right there. Let's stop right there. Say sure. that again. You're, you're willing to take steps backwards and let them yep. catch birds. Uh-huh. Yep. And not point. A hundred percent. To build drive. Yep. This is and now, and I'm telling you, man, this is, is gonna. I'm gonna hear about this. No, this is tomorrow, that's perfect. Or the man, next that, day, whenever I, this thing drops, I preach that <laughs> over and over and over again. If I've got to take steps yep. backwards yep. to build again, yep, you got to train the dog and and do what the dog needs. That's huge, man. Exactly that, what you just said is huge. Sure, and that's and I to me, man, and that gets back to the experience and being a professional. You know, I, when, when people, you know, because, and I'm sure there's a lot, a lot of your listeners may be aspiring professional dog trainers, you know, to me, the difference. And, and when I say this, I don't mean in terms of what I'm willing to apply to a dog in terms of pressure or pain. It's what I'm willing to allow the dog to, to express or to unwind to, you know, it, the difference in my opinion, between a professional and a non-professional, I won't say an amateur, is the willingness to take those risks right. to say like, okay, you know, this dog looks okay, but I, I don't see everything I want to see out of it. And, you know, I could get away with sending this dog home, but I think there's more to him. I'm going to unwind him and I'm going to try and put him back together, you know, and, and I, I have the, the confidence in, in my ability to do that. That's going to, you know, and I think I can make this a better dog for this guy or, or lady. Absolutely. You, know, you can't and, uh, be afraid to train. You the see dog. a lot of that. Yeah. You can't be afraid to train. Absolutely. hundred percent. That's cool, man. So tell me a little bit about this French Brittany thing. You said that's kind of your, your ah. little niche. Tell me about it. Cause it's, it's more, so there's, all right, let's dive into this a little bit. Let's pontificate. I don't know if it's, if I'm sure. using that correctly. Uh, <laughs> no, we, that's exactly what we're doing. Man. Yeah. We're just, we're preaching. Hell yeah. So there's a Brittany. And there's a French Brittany. And back in the day, they were all French Brittany's. And then, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 years ago, they said, no, we're taking the French off of it. It's just a Brittany. And, but there's still a segment yeah. of French Brittany's. Can, I, can you kind of teach everybody a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is, you know, it's, it's pretty, um, 
this is a very small niche. I mean, the, the French, quote unquote, French Britney community in this country is tiny. Uh, the Brit, the American Britney community is pretty large. Um, you know, but it really what it is, is they did start as the same dog. The late uh, 19th century, you know, mid to late 19th century. It's a, it's a pretty neat little origin story if you believe it. Uh, but it's, um, you know, they were believed to have been a poacher's dog. And so there was a native spaniel to France. And, um, you know, what most people don't know is that in French or in France, there are quite a few what they call epanuals or epanuals, um, which literally translates to spaniel, but it doesn't mean the same kind of dog we think of when we think of a cocker or a springer. Uh, most of the panels in France are pointing dogs, um, but they they are just kind of an everyman's dog. The French are like dog aficionados and, and hunting freaks, right? They still have a ton of hunters and a great, strong hunting hunting culture over there. Um, and so, you know, they have these re- regional variations on a little pointing dog. And if it had long hair, it was called an apanel. And uh, if it had uh, a slick coat, um, it was a brock, right? And that was just a French pointer gotcha. um, of some sort. So, so, um, so the Epanuel Breton was this working man's, every man's spaniel, quote unquote spaniel of the Brittany region of France, which was a Celtic, um, shares a lot more in culture, culturally probably with like, wales or scotland or ireland and the rest of france it's it's pretty neat and i'm not ben but i i just i'm like you know i find it interesting um and so these these kind of you know in that time the, the folks that got to hunt were the aristocracy they were the the land, landed gentry and so you weren't allowed to hunt on their property and there wasn't really any public land to go hunting on um, and the peasants didn't really own land. They were just basically sharecroppers. So they, um, they would poach. And so they'd like a little small, quiet dog, uh, that allowed them to, to find game on, on this landed gentry's property and, and go bag it and take it home to eat supper. And that's the origin story of the Brittany. That's, cool. that, that's what it was used for. It was this small dog that, was good at a was a good little hunting dog and they just and these every you know common guys got out there and just got to go get their birds and rabbits and squirrels and whatever else and take it home for supper table so um, so i so i, I, misspoke I earlier sorry so I, I misspoke earlier they used to be called the britney spaniel right yep yep okay and then they and just that, dropped yep, the spaniel that was the name just, everywhere yeah, my bad so it wasn't sure. french britney versus britney it was britney yep. spaniel and they dropped the spaniel Right. Yeah. And so they dropped the Spaniel. And that's, and I mean, and honestly, like, you know, it, it probably helped clear some things up for some folks because in the AKC and in the, the anglicized gun dog world, Spaniels really are flushing dogs. Correct. And so even though in France, it really just means a long haired pointing dog for the most part. Um, so, so yeah, but then what happened is in the twenties and thirties, some of the, fir- you know, the, we were getting the first imports and these dogs uh, came in uh, with this standard from the FCI, which is, oh gosh, the Federation Cenophile uh, Internationale. It's uh, essentially French for um, the group of kennel clubs in Europe. 
Uh, and so they all agree upon the standard. Well, the standard they came with when when the Britneys were originally imported is the one that the AKC adopted, and it pretty much stuck with. I think they've made a couple of slight adjust, adjustments over the years, but today when you look at the American Brittany, um, it really looks like the dog that was originally imported. So can you can you kind of give a little bit of a tutorial on the personality, the generalization of a personality, and then maybe the minor differences between an American and a French? Yeah, you know, I think what's being aimed at, I mean, in America, the French Brittany is billed as uh, the foot hunter's bird dog that makes a great house dog. Um, the uh, it, it, kind of the, the mantra is angels in the house, demons in the field. Okay. And, and that's really cool. Uh, it doesn't always turn out to be the case, but I think the majority of the time, because we manifest the things that, you know, really we work towards, it does. But I think uh, the American Britney is, is pretty much kind of spot on just with, um, you know, with an American, you know, an Americanized flavor. They run, you know, they run big, bigger field trials on bigger courses, but it doesn't mean they can't be great hunting dogs. And, and most of them are, and I, I've got one in right now that I'm actually, um, I picked up from a, from a breeder that's a, that breeds dual purpose dogs and didn't quite fit her criteria for bruise dog. Um, and I, I thought it would be a nice dog for a client I had based on what she was describing it uh, as. And, uh, it's a killer dog. She's so sweet, supernatural bird dog needs very little work um to be uh to be you know kind of one of that those top dogs in the field and like just hanging out with her is super easy so there are you know i i had like i said man i i think you know as a rule i think there's more variation within breeds than there are amongst them oftentimes Mm -hmm. and you know I, i don't i don't like getting into the my breed's better than yours. This is why I like this better than the other. But I think you, you find the thing you like, you, you, you find the target for your specific breed. You know, if you, if it's a, um, you know, if you want a, a great duck dog, you get a lap, you know, if you want, or if you want that kind of sweet, you know, fluffy thing that can also do well at being a duck dog, you get a gold. Right. Uh, or if if you you know if you want that balls out, you want to find every bird in the country, you go get you an English pointer. Exactly. You know, and and then everything that you know, everything in between, they're all on the spectrum somewhere. Get that thing that that represents what it is that's your ideal dog. Go out and get it, man, and 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 make it, you know, your perfect dog. Doesn't matter what it is. That's a really good way of putting it. Make it your perfect dog, but. Yeah, I agree with that. So would you say, like how I'm hearing it a little bit, would be like the British Lab gentleman's gun dog-esque, where the French Brittany sure. sounds like a little bit more easygoing in the house and a little bit easier to, to say they're chiller, and then out in the field they love to do I, the work. Yep. That, I mean, that's, that's what we're aiming at, right? I mean, I think that's... You know, if we're if we're all being honest, you know, I've got a stud here that he prized to 
this uh, this spring in Navda, and we really want a prize one because I think he's a nice VC type of dog, um, and he's won some draws. He's a super stylish male, um, but he is like he is the quintessential French Brittany man. He's like you put your hand on his head, he just melts. He he's super affectionate. He wants to be around you. You put him on a place board, and he can just go to sleep within five seconds. Cool, you know, or if, you know, if doves are flying, he's up and he's ready to go pick them up or, you know, and he's got a ton of style on his birds. And, cool. Um, you know, so, so that's what we're aiming at. We don't always get it, but, you know, I'm sure you've had some Brit dogs that break the mold. Oh, uh, yeah. and vice versa. Absolutely. And that's, that's kind of like, yeah. I would say that's my only gripe with them is some of them are balls to the wall and some of them are slow. Like, they're a lab. I can get you yeah, an American yeah. lab that is slower and will fall asleep <laughs> yeah. on a placement. And I'll get you one that that is high drive too. Like, so so there's generalizations, feel, yeah. but but yeah, it's nice yep. when it works out. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's what so it's what you aim at. So, like I said, I mean, you you try to manifest that thing you want. If right. I was looking for that chill lab, I'd probably look for a Brit dog, you know. Or, but I also would not pass up a nice American you know, hunt test bred dog that comes from that guy that knows his lines, Yeah, you know, and Couldn't can tell more. me that's what he breeds, man. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me a little bit about your kennel name. How did you come up, come up with it? Yeah, I was, I, I mean, uh, I was in Afghanistan. It was like 2012 and all. And, uh, so for any of your listeners that ever spent any time either, deployed or imprisoned, uh, they're going to know you got time on your hands. And so I just did a lot of daydreaming. I did a lot of listening to old Hank Williams songs. And there's a, he had a song called, uh, Lost highway. And I just thought it, you know, it was a neat song and I could hear the parallels to my life. Uh, go listen to it and you'll, you'll probably understand what I'm talking about, but cool. It just made sense, and I was like, "I'm going to call. I'm going to call my kennels Lost Highway when I get home, and this is what I'm going to do." And I, made, you know, wrote up a big business plan in my in my downtime, and and uh, you know, I'm, I'm, it worked out, man. Here Good I am. You. And you've got a lot of big things happening on social media. Um, tell me a little bit about that and what you're working towards with your blog and and Instagram and some of the things going on there. Instagram, I got in. I'm a little older. I just turned 40 this year, just had my first kid. So I, it didn't come, social media is not, didn't like, wasn't supernatural to me. Um, yeah, I learned how to type on a typewriter. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, and, and, but I recognized the value. And so I always wanted to hack away at it. And it's been just a long haul, man. You know, since I decided I was going to develop a business, I was like, well, this is what I'm going to do. And, I got it and I just post every day and it's probably pretty hokey to people that know what they're doing, you know, but it's a lot of fun and it's engaging. And I made a lot of good friends on the internet that have become friends in real life. So, yeah. you know, that's, I'd say, you know, my social media stuff, that's, that's kind of what it is. It's, you know, I try, I try really hard um, to accurate, accurately represent my personal life and my business life and not, and not separate them. I think it's really important to try and be as true to yourself as possible and vulnerable when necessary. And, you know, I want, I want people to know who I am and if they decide to not send me their dog or not be my buddy, that's cool. 
you know, that they're going to know hopefully, you know, who I am and what I stand for. And um, I'm not a divisive person. I just want, you know, I want to train dogs and have a good time. And, and I try to reflect that. And, you know, I try to allow my social media to project who I am. Yeah. And I, and I find that, you know, that, that, that works for me. So no, I think um, that's I the right always, way to do it. Yeah. I don't always succeed. I mean, I put up shit that's hokey sometimes and I'm like, dude, that was, that was a mess, you know, and I shouldn't have done that. I'm reaching too hard and I just need to go back to being me, you know, but that's how you, that's how you do it. So for me anyway, no, um, I agree. and then, you know, and then if you read my blog, you'll find it's kind of the same, man. I, I'm not big on editing. So there's probably a bunch of typos in there, but I try to write what I believe, um, about dogs and, you know, again, I don't try to be divisive, but sometimes that that happens. Um, you know, I, I say things that people disagree with, but I I I, I don't ever intend to, to pick fights or hurt anybody's feelings. I just want to, you know, you know, talk about. I think I, I'm really into dogs, and that's what I write about. So, you know, that's that's what's on there. And luckily, I've I uh, as far as social media is concerned, and and my internet presence. Uh, I've, I've partnered with a young lady that came in as a as a um, client about a year ago, and just she, I, I recognized she uh, was a huge talent. She was um, a professional dog trainer, pet trainer already, and uh, just luckily was was kind of hoping to get into into bird dogs more, and I offered her an internship and. You know, one thing led to another. Now we're just just partners, and she's she's such a talent, and she has uh, she is of an age that where it makes sense. She understands the social media, and um, she has an enormous presence online. Her uh, handle on Instagram is short hairs and shotguns, uh, and her name is Emily Shirey. And so I'm just grateful to have her around, man. She's made my days training bird dogs like you know, uh, twice as efficient. I can, I can, uh, manage my, my load of client dogs, uh, much more effectively with her around. And she's, she's just a, a fantastic trainer, a good person. And, uh, I highly recommend giving her a follow. She's, uh, a big boon for my business. Good for you. So speaking of your business, you know, if people want sure. to possibly send their dog to you, you know, can you tell them a little bit about the kennel and you know how many dogs you're training and things like that? Yeah, I so I find you know there's a sweet spot. I I, I when I uh, was working with the guys that you know retriever guys tend to be all about efficiency. You know, they can train 20, 22, 24 dogs in a day um, because the setups can be similar for dogs of, of different levels. Uh, I find with the bird dogs, it's a little tougher. Some dogs um, separate from my big dogs, and I have to pay attention. It just It's tougher to get my setups to line up. So for me, I found the sweet spot is like 13 dogs. So... Um, I, I keep 13 runs for client dogs. I, I like to keep a string of about six or eight of my own dogs because I guide during the hunting season. Cool. Um, you know, and I would say I average, uh, I keep a couple of indoor runs where I, I do the companion gun dog thing and I, and I do them indoors, but 
know, usually got 10, between 10 and 13 dogs around here. Very cool. Very cool. So if they want to, if people want to reach out to you and I hope they do tell them where they can find you. Yeah. Um, so you can find me at, uh, www.losthighwaykennels.com blog. And it's got the event. We've got to do some snake aversion. We've got two or three of those coming up in the next month. And I'm also teaching a first aid course. I'm doing a one down at Target K9 with Jerry Bradshaw and his students in June. And I'll probably have something put together that I could offer to, to some local clubs around here, um, you know, this year and looking to expand that in the future as well. And that just kind of leans on my background with uh, combat trauma and such. Good for you, man. Well, thank you so much for joining the show tonight. I really, really enjoyed chatting with you and getting to know you over the phone here. I hope next time I'm in Charleston, I need to take a drive up and we're going to work together, buddy. That that is on my bucket list next fall. Thank you so much for joining us. Everybody go check them out. Um, And until next time, give us the old five-star rating. I'll throw that one in there. And uh, thank you all for tuning in. Have a great night. Hey, patreon.com forward slash Lone Duck Outfitters. It's a community that we built to help you and your dog on your journey to next duck season. There's videos that don't hit YouTube. There's happy hours where we drink a couple beers and I answer your questions every other week. And by the way, if you join between now and September 1st, you're entered to win a hunt with me and Kevin and other Patreon members. So jump in. Let's go. Join the community. We appreciate it. And we'll see you there. Hey listeners, Nick Larson here, host of the Bird Shop Podcast. As fans of this show, you may be interested in the conversations on the Bird Shop Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting, from upland birds and their habitat and conservation to the shotguns, bird dogs, and gear used to pursue them. Whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more, I interview a wide range of guests, each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share. If you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation, please consider subscribing to the Bird Shop Podcast today. Thank you.